0: Okay, Luke 14:25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he is not able to be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me is not able to be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not able, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has is not able to be my disciple.
1: Well, so much for gentle. Um, (laughs) The the stories of Jesus are meant to be a gentle way into into truth. Um, But Jesus says, Hate your father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life. Bear your cross, renounce everything. Of all the things Jesus could say and of all the things that Jesus did say, these seem to be the most blunt, the most direct, the least slant or subtler kind, if we're honest, right? There is no gradual dazzle to the glaring unveiling. And when we hear these words, is not our first reaction to duck and hide, right? I mean, if we're just honest, if we were to hear Jesus say to us, hate your mom, hate your dad, hate your children, hate your brother, hate your sister, hate your own life, bear your cross, renounce everything, and if you don't, there's no way you're in. Don't we want to hide from that? Don't we instinctually throw up our hands as shields against the searing brightness of such direct and scolding? Doesn't it feel kind of scolding like hot revelation? Adding to the dizzying directness of this kingdom, life with God, epiphany, or Jesus, to what's called interrogative parables or stories in question form. Both seemingly, as many a pastor and commentator affirm, espouse what appears to be common sense wisdom, right? Count the cost before you get into the thick of it. Doesn't that sound like what the stories mean? Which seems like straightforward advice, right? For anyone undertaking a momentous task. Building a tower, taking on another kingdom. Anybody who might be changing their lives, repenting. But is life with God a task to complete? Were we planted for pleasure or production? What's really been our effort in repentance? At least what we've learned in the kingdom of Epiphanes. Interesting, if not important questions, but let's get back to the story. I don't know about you, but my Bible reads, on top of this little section, the cost of discipleship. That's what my Bible, my translation designates as the heading for Jesus' abrupt revelation. uh, A nine-verse detailed outline of what repent and believe will require if we want to get in on this life with God. That's at least the presumption of the editors, and I imagine many of us. Tell me how many of us have heard the point of these parables, these uh, uh, interrogative parables. I think I said interrogative, but interrogative parables is something like this. Just as no builder would undertake a task without assessing his or her ability and resources, just as no person in charge would risk his or her position and stability without calculation, no one would or should be so foolish to follow jesus without assessing the impact such a decision will have on one's life doesn't that sound like common sense doesn't that what we've heard mainly these parables submit that's kind of feels like a straightforward reading doesn't it and listen the gospel truth of life on our own being over and life with god being at hand does change everything it changes our allegiances our desires our focus our service, our standing, even our submission, and the way we use our resources. What we've seen in the stories of life with God, encapsulating this one, though, seems to paint a different picture than what these stories tell. The barren fig tree in chapter 13 and the lost things in chapter 15, the stories literally that are on the front end and the back end of Jesus' stories today. What have these kingdom epiphanies, what have they allowed us to see already about repentance, about our ability or lack of ability to finish what has started, or heck, even to get back to where we started on our own. Did the sheep or the coin find their way home? Or were they found and brought home? Or what about reconciliation, our ability or lack of ability to make peace, to bear fruit through our efforts and negotiations? Was the tree the one that argued for life to continue? Was the tree the one that cultivated and kept cultivating? Or was someone else? Let me ask you this. Is it Jesus' habit to invite us to weigh out if life with him is worth pursuing? Just in your own understanding of scripture and what you've read in your, in your, in your own time with the Lord and, and through, um, through study of the Bible, is it's habit to ask us to measure what it will cost us to follow him versus what, it'll, what we'll get out of it? Does he suggest to us in any way that life with him is something we can live up to Or something that we need to decide if we are able to attain? The answer is no. Not at all. In fact, the stories that we've told already, Jesus assumes we are all but dead in every one of his stories. They were all but dead in the ground, or good as dead in the wilderness, buried like the dead under the dirt of daily existence. Or in the probably the most famous story that he tells, the story of the two sons, which I know we haven't looked at this year, but it's been a story that we've told as a faith family multiple times every year. Jesus assumes we squander what life we've been given, whether in endeavors outside of his house or cheerless obligation within. No, in the stories surrounding these parables, it is Jesus' assumption of our not ableness that makes Jesus' bright enlightenment such good news. We're not able. That's the good news. Time is up. You're done. You weren't able to finish. Your squandering life is over. God's life is where you're found, where you've come to life from being dead and gone. Or as again, the parables that follow this say, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So while Jesus interrogative parables, like all his others, offer us wisdom and insight into life with God, maybe the light shed is less common sense than what we initially receive. Think about it. If Jesus is arguing for us to live wisely, common sense, count the cost, make sure you've got everything you need to finish what you start, common sense, right? If that's the point of what Jesus is trying to tell us, then why does he preface these stories and provide as their summation what is tantamount to common foolishness? Common sense foolishness. Let's read again verses 25 through 27, what Jesus says just before he tells the stories in question form. and verse 33, how he sums them up. In Luke 14, verse 25, Jesus says, or it said, Now great crowds accompany Jesus, a whole mixture of people, those inside, those outside, the rich, the poor, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, the scribes, the Pharisees. This is everybody and anybody. in a particular group, it's everybody who has any sort of interest at all in Jesus. And Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he is not able to be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me is not able to be my disciple. And he just tells the stories. and At the end of the stories, in verse 33, he says, So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has is not able to be my disciple. Listen, no one hearing these stories in the first century would have, um, would have missed the utter foolishness of Jesus' revelation. In first century Judea, and really, to be honest, almost everywhere outside of developed Western nations even today, only someone who actually does hate, detest, love less their own life, a.k.a. a fool would renounce his or her family outright. Only a fool renounces their family outright. No matter what one thought of their family or thinks of their family or wishes for their family, it was common knowledge that your life and your family's life, your history and potential, your reputation and trade were inseparably intertwined. You had no life if you had no family. Family was the source of life and the measure of its strength and success. Family gives the possibility for survival, for prosperity, for happiness, for identity, for belonging, for longevity, for connection to something bigger and more past and future. Through family you knew yourself and through family you lived. Not just emotionally or psychologically but physically, practically. You can't survive on your own. To leave your family, to hate them and walk away from them is tantamount to acting foolish. To hating your own life. Truly, only a fool would walk away from the source of life voluntarily, abandoning themselves to such hopeless, helpless neediness. Only a fool would abandon themselves to such hopeless, helpless neediness. Truly, only someone so shameful enough to be hung on a tree would commit an act so cursed and foolish. And so it seems, truly, only a condemned fool is able to follow Jesus. At least that's what he says. And that's what would have been heard. Only a condemned fool can follow me. Listen, we hear the questioning stories as wisdom for knowing what you are able to do before doing it. Counting the cost, weighing the cost, weighing what you've got versus what it's going to take. But Jesus is saying rather brilliantly, but letting the brilliant truth dazzle gradually. The true wisdom is to know what you are not able to do in life. It's not wisdom to weigh what you can and can't do. It's wisdom to know what you can't and won't ever be able to do. Life in the kingdom of God, life with God, following Jesus, being his apprentice, is less about what you can do than what you cannot do. Because, as Jesus' stories before and following a test, when we realize that we are fruitless, lifeless, and lost, That's when we recognize that we are also being resurrected and restored. Only dead and gone things get the forever life, and that seems kind of foolish. Only the things that bear no fruit get the cultivation. Only the things that are lost and gone get the celebration. These are not stories saying to take a look look to ensure you have enough. They are stories that assume you don't. What Jesus is saying in these stories, after he says, only a condemned fool is going to follow me, he throws out what would seem like on the surface common sense wisdom. But if we sit in it and let ourselves hear it from the, from the foolish perspective of what Jesus is saying, the slant way, the sideways way, he's saying, like the builder, you're not able to live without shame. He's saying, not saying, be the builder, he's saying, you're like the builder. You won't live without shame. At some point, you will find that you don't have enough to complete the life plans you started. And you'll have to give it up. At some point, you'll find yourself, whatever foundation you laid, not able to build whatever life you thought you could live. Like the king who seemingly has everything, 10,000, at his disposal to finish, to conquer, to win. You cannot live without running into something that will demand you compromise yourself in hopes of keeping some of what you've got. Eventually, even if you have everything, you too lose. Inevitably, it appears, we all, without exception, whether kings or just builders, without exception, we are found wanting, lost in the wilderness, buried under the grime of daily dust, short on resources, and giving up what we thought we had complete control over. So Jesus is saying, stop trying to avoid what you are not able to avoid. Losing. Stop trying to avoid it. But here's a brilliant part of Jesus' kingdom sense. When you're not able to live a life free of failure, when you're not able to live a life free of loss, not able to live a life free of darkness or tragedy or death, when you stop avoiding losing, or even spending everything for nothing, when you renounce all that you have, what you discover is that everything you've got, which at that point is what? If you renounce all that you have, nothing. You, no, you just have you. You have you in your neediness, you in your not ableness. But that turns out to be exactly the right amount to cut you in on the good news deal. You have one life, and the price of salvation is one life. His life, in exchange for yours. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is the way the Apostle Paul says it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who have stopped trying to avoid death, who haven't stopped trying to avoid death, who are still dying in their pursuit not to die. But to those who are being saved, who are on the backside of death, who have stopped avoiding dying and embraced it, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. If in... The true light comes in to enlighten all, and yet, even the one who made the world, the world didn't know. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus, to save those who believe. If our first two kingdom epiphanies this year revealed, at least in some way, that we are brought into the kingdom by God's rather foolish acts, the shepherd leaving the 99 in the wilderness to go find the one, and if we remain in the kingdom by God's rather unconventional and persistent efforts, hand-laying manure on lifeless tree roots, then perhaps what our third epiphany might shine a, light, a little light on is that we live day by day with Jesus in the kingdom by the same kind of foolishness. Both the foolishness to not avoid your inability, but also embracing our neediness in the foolishness of his love for us. Or to say it another way, to find ourselves in the kingdom, we have to be found by a love that comes searching. To remain rooted in the kingdom, we have to receive love's patient, persistent cultivation. To build our daily lives in the kingdom, we have to abandon ourselves whole and wholeheartedly to that same love. Listen, if that sounds a little strange, you're not alone. John the baptizer who prepared the way for Jesus even wondered at the seemingly backward way of God's kingdom coming. The unwise way, the seemingly unwise way, the lack of common sense way in which Jesus was doing all that John had prophesied that he would do. So he sent a couple of his friends to ask Jesus if he indeed was the one or if there was some other way to the end of time and life with God. And Jesus answered them in Matthew 11, he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. All the low and needy, the least and the lost, all them are found. What else does John see? He doesn't see anything else. Jesus doesn't tell him to see Tell of the great miracles that were done, the wine into, into water, water into wine. That's the way it went, and uh, not the other way. Um, walking on water, fish catching, feed the 5,000. He doesn't tell them of these grand and great things. He doesn't tell them of any sort of, of upheaval and overturning of the systems of the day. All he says is go and tell them what you see, that the lost and the least have found life, have been found and that what has been dead has come to life. And then he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, <laughs> who's not offended by the foolishness in which God actually works. Blessed is the person, says one author, who sees that all appearances to the contrary, notwithstanding, Jesus is who he says he is and does what he says he does, if they'll only, at admittedly great cost, but cost to their pride to their common sense, to their sad vision of what is and is not possible in the stormy world, let him do it. What does it cost us to be a disciple of Jesus? It costs us our pride, our common sense, our sad vision. Blessed is the person, in other words, who builds his or her life in the kingdom, walking with Jesus in the foolishness of God's love, that brings the dead to life and finds the lost, Who pays the price of pride and abandons themselves to the mercy and steadfast love that have been from old. If we want to live in the kingdom, not just be brought into it, not just be cultivated in it, but build our lives in it. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost us something different than we think. It's going to cost us our common sense, our pride, our sad vision of what's possible and not possible. It's going to cost us by calling us to abandon ourselves to God's love. So we pray with me, and then we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. A grace and mercy, a steadfast love that's been from the foundation of the world. And in Jesus, we see this, right? We've come to know you, as the author of Hebrews would say, Not just through your prophets and stories of old, but most clearly, abundantly, brightly, through your Son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you do not ask us to decide if we are able, but you assume that we're not. Father, I'm I'm grateful that you ask us only to abandon ourselves to your love and not to efforts to earn or to win or to finish. I thank you that you call us to give the only thing we have to give, which is a life that's not even ours. The very breath that we breathe is from you. And I thank you that in exchange For what seemingly little we have to offer, in wit or wisdom. Father, you count as treasure. And you say it's enough. And even more so, you make up (laughs) the difference, as it were, in Jesus. His life given for us. So I pray over these next few moments, Father that we would let ourselves maybe just a little bit be offended by your stories, at least our pride, our common sense, and even our little visions of what is possible with you. I pray, Father, that in our conversations, Lord, that we might enlighten and encourage one another, that we might help each other see why it's really, truly good news to be ones who lose. And Father, more than in this moment of conversation and processing, I pray, Father, that we would walk out of this place as ones who believe the words spoken by your Son, the encouragements of one another. Lord, and that tomorrow we see the world as you see it. And our lives look just a little different. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for a time to be with one another and to receive both. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, as we've done for the last couple weeks, now we get to chat about it. Now, we're going to have a little bit extra time to chat today. That was kind of the point. I've um, got a couple questions for you. I think we've got them for the screen. Yep. Yeah. And so, I know this parable is meant to kind of stump us a little bit not stump us like confuse us, but to make us wonder, why would Jesus say something so foolish and then say something seemingly so wise and then come back to something so foolish? It's meant to get us to think about what he's actually saying. And so that requires a little bit of processing. It doesn't hit us straight on. So that might require for us to do a little bit of processing together. So for a few minutes, I want in your groups to just kind of talk about like, what is the cost What is the real cost of repentance, of discipleship? What is Jesus saying that he's really wanting us to understand? And then let that kind of like honestly maybe even offend us a little bit. Because we might not all believe that this is what Jesus is actually saying. We might not all be there to a place where, yeah, that would be great if we actually thought that, but our lives maybe don't actually exhibit that we think that, right? So let yourself kind of get into the question of what, what truly is the cost, and then... After that, talk about why is that such good news. Because even today, like, like, I don't know what, what you guys do on your Sunday mornings, now that we're meeting on Sunday afternoons, but we had a basketball game, which was great. Um, um, we won our basketball game, which is awesome, right? It was great. It was really cool. Life seems to be really exciting when we win, and we seem to do everything we do in preparation during the week for basketball to get to the win on, on the weekend. And that's, that's perfectly fine and normal, right? But Jesus is saying the kingdom of God works opposite of that, that it's actually losing and losing that you win. Like we didn't practice all week long to to get blown out like that. We would would have thought thought that was a defeat, right? Even if we tried our best and did our best, it still would have been a defeat. But the cross is completely opposite of that. It's not we tried our best and we still lost. It's like, no, we started out like we were losers from the beginning. We are losers at the end. We are losers. Not like God hates us losers, but like, like we're losers. Like that's it, right? So the good news is the time ran out on the clock and you were not even close. That's good news. Because if you're not even close, that means you had to be someone else had to be. I am. And listen, as we read in the song, I've been from the very beginning. And then if you have time, I really want you to have an opportunity today to kind of talk about what does this look like actually lived out? What does it look like outside of this place, in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces? What if we actually believe that this is the way the life of God actually works? Like This is how God's actually worked in my own life and is working right now, even in the lives of those around us. What would actually be different if I actually believed this? Cool? So let's break up into groups three to four chat with each other if you're new with us and this feels a little weird for you um, you can just listen it's perfectly fine nobody has to share but we but it's an opportunity for us to process together because we think that's actually kind of important so I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to give you about 20 minutes total to chat together okay ready break